Welcome everyone to Haggerty's Never Stop Driving Podcast. This is the pod for those who love cars and driving and are committed to keeping those precious things alive. Now we're gonna bring you the latest from the car world, the latest from Haggerty Media, and interviews with the world's most compelling car people. I'm your host, Larry Webster. I'm the editor-in-chief of Haggerty Media. And today I have two co-hosts in honor of a very special time of year for us, and that's when we reveal Haggerty's bull market list, which we did earlier this week. Now, these are the cars that we think will appreciate in the coming year. That's right, everybody. Buy low, sell high. But there's, uh, as always, there's much more to the story. And that's why I'm here with the person who rides that data and informs the list. This is Haggerty's VP of Automotive Intelligence, Brian Raybold. And I'm also joined by somebody who's a key figure in producing this for us, the executive editor of Haggerty Media's website, Eric Weiner. Uh, hi, you guys. Thank you for being here. Hey, Larry. Hey, Eric. How's it going? Thanks for having me. It's a really big week. Huge. I think we should start out. Uh, I just want to tell the story real quick, Brian, because you and I are part of the origin story of this. Um, I remember when I started at Haggerty and I kind of looked around and, and you had a team back then of like seven or eight people, right? Yeah, that's right. And you, what, what they did is they went out and they looked at, they combed the sales uh, landscape and then they put all that in some sort of database and then they spit out this Haggerty price guide. I mean, that's oversimplifying. I know you go out to a whole bunch a of dealers bit, and yeah, people. Right. Sure, that's the that's the quick take. Yeah, but you gut check it with real experts and appraisers and all this stuff. And and the whole point was in the in the sort of you know once you a car got past a normal used car that would be at a dealership auction and got into like the enthusiast hands, the value is just sort of like you know people would lick their finger and put it in the wind, right? Whoever said it was worth was before you guys really kind of made it scientific, correct? Um, thank you very much. Uh, there there were, have been price guides out there, but yes, uh, collector car price guides are a lot harder to do because the sales volume is so much lower. So we had a team um, uh, that was about seven people, as you mentioned, um, yeah. we were producing Haggerty Price Guide that was actually created um, in 2006 by a gentleman named David Kinney, who I know you know very well, um, mm. under the title Cars That Matter. And um, really it was a focus on just taking a lot of care and doing a lot more review, not just of average numbers and sales, uh, and really looking at the, the story behind the cars. So we were... The condition we were of the cars. Them. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, the condition, yeah. the equipment, um, sometimes the provenance, who owned that car, um, and really trying to take uh, a well-rounded approach to creating a price guide, which is, uh, yeah, when I met you, probably in the, in the mid-2020 yeah. teens. So before that, I thought a lot of it was, uh, you know, guessing. People had a rough idea of what things were worth. There were some spreadsheets and databases out there. But then I remember thinking, oh, man, back in all of my time in car magazines, uh, some story with a lot of cars on a cover always outsold everything else, except if it was a brand new Corvette, like four to one. Mm -hmm. So I was like, well, I got to apply that here. How do I get a lot of cars in the cover? But we're only talking about older cars. And I thought about it. And I was like, well, boy, if we could really tell people what cars are going to be worth. That could be something. I, and I still remember the phone call when I called you. And I said, Brian, I got this idea. Uh, I want to I give people a list of cars that we think are going to appreciate. Is that possible? And I expected you to laugh me out of the, off the phone. And there was this like three second pause. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, we could do that. We could do that. I was like, really? <laughs> Seriously? <laughs> we, yeah. Um, well, and I think... Um, uh, was that a dumb yeah, question? That, what, wait, wait, wait. Let's just go back for a second. What did you feel like when I asked it? Were you like, what is this dumb, dumb thinking? 
my I usually go to like how how are we going to do this? Um, so right. I paused for a little bit and I thought how are we going to do this? Um, and I didn't know exactly how it was going to go, but I knew we had a lot of data that we could lean on, and I knew that the thing that we could do differently is go beyond just polling some people and saying what are your picks, and we could actually make a really strong case. And then um, I think our track record has been pretty good. We we can talk about that later, um, but just I. I thought that we could do it. And I loved the fact that you were coming and saying, like, let's get a bunch of cars together because it was a really great way for, um, I think, to bring a lot of the data that we have, which can be a little bit dry uh, for some yeah. people and bring it to life. And, so, and like, there's a real application here. Um, it's, right. not just, it's not just numbers in a spreadsheet, like you said. It's, uh, it's, it's uh, insights that, that can help people enjoy the, the, their cars sure. more. Yeah. So what we do is we use this thing like if, if something's important to you, then you treat it importantly. And so we really, instead of just coming out with a listicle and Eric, I'm going to kick it to you in a second. Like, you know, that's tried and trade in the digital automotive media world. You just come up with a listicle, you find photos and you're done for, you know, two hours. But we really wanted to present if these only cars. It were that simple. It is that simple. <laughs> I know it's that simple. Don't overcomplicate your job. I know exactly what it is. <laughs> um and, you know, so we got all the cars together at a track. We photographed them uh, in a real high quality way. We got to know the owners. We got to know the cars so we could write, you know, more richly detailed write-ups. And I think that was before you were here, but it's sort of immediately the automotive world, in my view, even though we, we came up with kind of a weird name, let's be honest, bull market, you know, I, it was it's a little not clear enough, but then you get it. I'm not, you know, but here we are with it. Uh, the, uh, the, the automotive uh, digital world, I think they recognize what we were trying to do immediately and they appreciate it because it traveled around the web uh, pretty quickly. And, you know, Eric, from your experience, is that one of those stories? I think it's one of those stories that typically performs pretty well for us, right? Yeah, it's consistently among our most popular stories of the year. Of the year. And it's really not that much of a surprise, you know, when we're in it. We, we live and breathe Haggerty all day long, but most people, if they know Haggerty or most aware of uh, the insurance product and the valuation tool and uh, the price guide. Yeah. And that's a credit to, to Kenny and to, to Raybould and, and in their teams for making that connection strong. And it's our, our knowledge and our data that gives us a unique selling point in the automotive media world. Because when we say that things are worth X or that, you know, we have reason to believe that they're going to be worth Y, we have data that, you know, we only have access to, to, to an extent, of course. And, uh, you know, that combined with public stuff allows us to make highly educated good guesses. guesses. And so yeah. people will believe us more than they will believe other outlets or other individuals. Yeah. So, we, yeah, we, we work to make it entertaining and compelling and, and draw people in so they get a sense. But, the, you know, the mission from day one, I remember thinking, you see from time to time these sort of investment funds that pop out and they say, look, you can own a fractional you know, stretch of this really awesome collector car. But the bull market list was always different. It was always about figuring out a way to enjoy a, the hobby at, at a really uh, inexpensive way. And um, I think we really want to communicate, and I think we've done this, is that it's, um, it's an incredible store of value. And, you know, Brian, these cars, once they bottom out in the depreciation curve, they really don't go far below it. So, the, you know, the, 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 the next thing that'll happen is they'll either stay flat or they'll go up. And so you can own these cars for a couple of years. You know, you got carrying costs, insurance, storage, gas, blah, blah, blah. But then you sell them 
about what you have in it, which, I mean, it is cheap fun. Yeah, that's the, that's what I like about it, right? Like a lot of people look at this and uh, some of the feedback I get is, well, cars aren't investments or uh, is this a list of cars I should invest in? And I always tell people, if you're looking at investments, there are a lot of easier ways to go about it than to get into cars. Um, it it really is about um, highlighting cars that might be going up in value or will be going up in value. And that can help fund your enjoyment. And if you're lucky, you can sell it for more than you have into it after a few years. And then a lot of most people, most enthusiasts will roll that into their next purchase. So it might help them get into another car uh, that they couldn't afford before. Uh, the other thing is, it's it's a list that's very broad and that's intentional. So we're highlighting yeah. no matter what your taste is, no matter what your budget is, there is a car that kind of fits in there. And I love it when people read it and like, oh, I never thought about that. But but um, you know, this car is one that maybe I'll I'll take a look at this year. Like it wasn't on their list, but they they uh, they know that now might be a good time to do it uh, and have their fun with it and move on later. I think the hardest part is. Um you know, anybody could take a list of uh, interesting cars from the 80s and, and make a reasonable guess that they're at the bottom of that depreciation curve mm-hmm. and might start to go up. It's pretty easy. But to your point, we're really deliberate about trying to go um, farther, further older to kind of highlight those cars that, you know, were built in the 50s and 60s to try and make sure we have a wide range of stuff that's available. And we've done that, I think, pretty well. We're in our seventh year. I mean, it highlights, you know, the one year, um, Eric, I'm going to kick to you. It's like this car, I never expected to be on it uh, this year. It's at 48 town and country, the Chrysler. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm curious, like, what did you think when you saw that? How do you feel like the readers are going to respond? You know, this, the, 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 the story has been out for this week, but what do you, you know, what do you guess? I think anytime there's a, a degree of breath, it, it just, it speaks to the diversity and to the, the so many ways into the hobby. I mean, how many articles are you going to see where Countach shares, you know, the same uh, coverage as as town of, town and country? And people yeah. love Woody's fundamentally. I mean, oh. I think there's just a real attraction to Woody's. Um, it's just such a anachronism, you yeah. know. So, yeah, it was super fun. That car is um, it's it's classic. It's beautiful. It looks like it should be in a Ralph Lauren catalog. Totally. You know, the owner bought it in the '60s for 250 bucks. He's had it ever since. Um, it was raining during the shoot. He was not happy. There was a fair amount of tension. We were like, oh, just, just leave it out there for two more seconds. We're almost done. No, no, no. And uh, so there was some of that. But, um, uh, you know, Brian, I would like you to make the case for that car because I'm still very skeptical. I mean, I, I do trust you, but only yeah, only so far. You're, you're a shifty guy. Yeah. Okay. Um, this one was a surprise to me, too. And just because oh. you hear you hear a lot of people just waiting for cars from the forties and fifties to go out of style. And they, they don't yeah. have really a touchstone for current collectors. Um, but here, here was the case. So we have the Haggerty valuation tool website. Um, this is a website that's free for everybody to use. They can look up values of cars. Uh-huh. Uh, it's one of the things that we look at when we put together the, the argument for why a car should be on the list. Lookups on the Haggerty Valuation Tools website for this car were up 300% in the last year, which means people are starting to research uh, either the price for when they're going to sell or the price for when they're going to buy, most likely when they're going to buy. Amazing. So that shows intent, right? There's, there's this growing interest in uh, the value of this car. Um, 
its price has come down over the last several years. It's down 26% over the last five years, which probably, you know, a lot of people would think, well, if it's going down, why would, are we going to pick that to go up? But this rising interest in people uh, researching a purchase, prices coming down, it's starting to get to a point where they used to be really expensive. Now they're just kind of moderately expensive. And they start What are we talking about money here? Value. How much? A number two condition. So a really excellent uh, condition, uh, town and country convertible, 80,000 bucks. And then when That's we start, serious we start money to look for at, it, it is, but when we start to look at competitive sets, you start to, you know, you think about a Fiat Jolly, which kind of is a smaller, cuter beach ride. You're, you're paying about the same. This is a bigger, more luxurious, maybe fits more the same usable. bill of like a, a summer, summer car that you're just cruising around in. Uh, and there's a ton of style in it. And I think the Woody aspect, like Eric said, um, it's novel in a lot of ways. Um, and you know, you see people like lusting after grand wagoneers just for the, uh, hmm. for the, the fake wood paneling. Why not, mm -hmm. you know, pay maybe a little bit of, uh, around the same price for something that's actually real. In the top it's stuff. very luxurious and yet very relatable. You know, I think the Woody makes it very mm. appealing and people, I mean, this is a, you know, a forties thing, but with wood paneling much later, when people were, you know, putting that on family vehicles, people have fond memories of Woody's. And this was, you know, far before then when, you know, this was a much more luxurious and decorative element. But I think that makes it really relatable. I think people, you know, see it differently than they would see like a Duesenberg or something like that. Now, Eric, uh, if, if memory serves, you study something very useful in college, something like art history or philosophy or something like that. What was it? I mean, it depends on how useful you think art history and Russian studies are. Don't forget the Russian studies. <laughs> That's the engineer throwing shade at you, Eric. In case yeah, you the, the Russian studies. Oh, no, I'm familiar. <laughs> I mean, as somebody, as, I'm, I'm so grateful to work with somebody who's got the, that Russian studies background. But I mean, I, I, I just, I did want to give you at least a little bit of, uh, credit here because as a moment in time, like this style really speaks very strongly of the late forties, right? It's that initial post-war period. You know, if uh, just take me to that time in the country and, and maybe what this car describes about that time. Well, I'll give you a chance to use that really useful degree. <laughs> well, uh, my focus is more on the, on the teens and the twenties, uh, oh, but boy. I'll, uh, I'll do what I can. It's post-war, so it's the it's the first um, kind of ability to to come out of a period of just global crisis, and um, it's the it's the first inkling of what's to come in terms of the expression of the fifties. Yeah, but it's this kind of this mishmash of periods. Like you have um, the beginnings of of changes in the way cars are built post-war, uh -huh. with you know headlights moving, you know, as as part of the structure of the vehicle, and you start to see. Mm -hmm. the big difference that separates pre and post war cars. Mm -hmm. um, but you still have a bit of that decorative sensibility from mm -hmm. the forties. And so that's where you kind of get uh, some of this art deco kind of styling uh, for the, you know, with the shape of the hood and um, sort of that angularity, but it's starting to mix with the curvature that you start to see in the later fifties cars. Um, and it's, it's, it has a, sense that it doesn't take itself too seriously. Oh. Um, which when you, I mean, I think anyway, that's a bit of my own <laughs> opinion, but it's fun. It's, it's, it in, it's inviting in mm -hmm. a way that I think some of the cars, particularly from, 
the late 30s and the early 40s are just a little more sober. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it's a painting with a broad brush, but it's it's they're a little bit more sober. They're a little bit more uh, serious. And, um, you know, this is this is so fun. And yeah, I, no, you're, you're sort of photos, like... You photos, you want to sit in that car and you want to cruise down the boulevard <laughs> for hours. Yeah, I mean, you're totally pulling out my heartstrings because I can imagine people getting this thing, you know, after the war... And, you know, going down the highway, it's convertibles down. They've got this uh, stylish convertible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's still basically a 10-year-old design. They don't care. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and just the relief of the uh, the lack, the, you know, the relief from the stress and the strain and the sacrifice. I'm getting a little it's rich. It's optimistic. Here. Yes. It, there's an optimism to the look of it. But, like, you know, uh, Brian, what's, what I always find interesting in these, these uh, immediately post-war cars is, you know, the car companies were – they were shifting from war production back to cars. They were using the old tools and designs from before the war. So, I mean, if you think about this car, 10 years later, we were like full blown in the Finn era. Mm-hmm. And this is still sort of got that really classical look before car design became frivolous is the wrong word, but just exuberant. I would exuberant. Say. Oh, yeah. Look at you. Good adjective. Yeah. And, nice. and not even in Russian, Larry, in English. <laughs> So you know what I mean? I mean, that's kind of one of those things that I I was surprised that you guys picked this car. Let me just go, let me just poke at you one more yeah. time about the, you know, a car like this has got two-speed power glide automatic transmission. It's geared for 1940s road, which, which was uh, before the highway system. Right. You know, they don't really go highway speeds so well. Um, you know, it's an old car with all the caveats that, that come with it in terms of starting and fuel and blah, blah, blah. But one of the things that you guys pointed out was the high percentage of people that are interested in this car are Gen X. Um, it's a growing percentage. There's actually 33% of people uh, who are shopping for this car. We measure this uh, as uh, through our insurance quotes. So yeah. Haggerty has this unique position where we get a lot of people inquiring about insurance. They're usually doing that around the time that they're going to purchase a vehicle or immediately after. Yep. Um, and so this is a great, I, I just refer to it as a proxy for demand. This really shows kind of who's buying. Um, and we get demographic data with that as an insurance company. So um, oh. 33% of genera- of uh, town and country buyers are Generation X and younger. And so mm-hmm. Generation X is start, it, uh, has become the most uh, active generation in the uh, collector That's car me. market. That's me. I'm Gen X. Is, I am too. So we're right there together. Um, and then Eric, Eric, you're getting all the money from the boomers though. So screw you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Where's Um, that money? I haven't seen that money. Where's that? (laughs) Waiting for that check to cash. Yeah. Um, so, uh, a year ago we had 11% of town and country, uh, buyer interest was coming from generation X and younger. Wow. Uh, this year it's 33%. So it's gone up incredibly fast, more so than we see. Um, the the normal split here is 63% of car buyers, uh, collective mm-hmm. car buyers are Generation X and younger. So this is well be- behind that, but it's growing quickly. And so this is one of those things like it it wasn't on uh, young, I, I say younger loosely, Generation X, like yeah. not really a young, young group, but in, in an older hobby it is. Um, younger collectors are starting to take interest in it. And part of that's because the price has come down. They were yeah. probably priced out of it, never really considered it. Sure. Um, but if you think about it, you know, would you buy this car if you felt like you could just have it for a couple of years and um, and uh, make make a little bit of money or at least cover costs on it? 
it starts well, to become a lot more you. I don't know if I trust right? you, Brian. I don't know well, if I trust that, you. You're probably right to to be skeptical. Um, that, that's that's wise. But uh, our track record's pretty good. So you know, I think it's one of those things. Like, oh, it, Eric is bragging the, again. <laughs> having this on the I know list, you just ran the piece on the on the track record. What's the track record? Go ahead. Go ahead. I'll give you the floor. Go ahead, Brian. What are, what's our track record? Our track yeah. record, I, I don't actually have a uh, notes prepared, but it is, um, we, that's why we write the article, uh, Larry, so that we Yeah, can... we, did a, we did a bunch of report cards on each individual year to see how our predictions performed. Obviously, from our predictions for the 2018 bull market, we have a lot more data and, than we do with one year of data from last year's, but we consistently beat the average. Um, there's think, you know, uh, we had some strong ones that are you know maybe increased twenty percent compared to the usual uh, adjusted average of like two or three percent uh, for the market at large. And then yeah, inflation know, is what you're talking about. Uh, they're adjusted for inflation, so some just increased. Oh, thank some you. just increased the market overall. You know, experienced in most years somewhere between a two and three percent increase, and uh, most of the picks we had consistently beat that not all and so you know we had a couple over misses. yeah overall we've had i think 61 cars make the the list for seven, over years. The seven years mm-hmm. um and they outperform the rest of the cars we track by 14 percent. so so uh, yeah pretty good so i mean yeah, that's the that's the that's take the victory the i thought the, after that first year i thought the next year we're going to be eating crow so bad because i mean i said brian's a nice guy i don't know how sharp he is upstairs but let's see and uh you proved me wrong so i'm grateful um, for that they don't all they don't all hit you know like that's, yeah it, that's the nature of doing this and uh that is why we publish the report cards because we think that it's important if we're gonna put this yeah. out there as a prediction that we show how they perform so people can make a, a judgment about how much weight to put behind it but um yeah. Yeah. Again, this is about having fun. This is a store of value. You can buy these things, own them. It's not about making money. I mean, thank God, Mikhail, uh Haggerty, he's the CEO of the company. He gave me the, the best words. I, I, I can't thank him enough. One day he goes, I don't know about you, but I'm the kind of guy who buys high and sells low. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, yes, I've used that ever since. Well, let's move on, Eric. What, what's one of the, let's go to another car on the list that you really liked or really excited about was on it. Um, I mean, I've always been a- attracted to those M3s, the V8 M3s. Okay, what year are we talking? This you get closer the, to that mic. I'm having a hard time hearing you. This is the E92 there era. So this is kind of uh, 2008-ish uh, through, I think, 2013, 2007 mm-hmm. through 2013. So this is the E92, um, E90 era, BMW M3. Aren't and the car that we... <laughs> 2007? Yeah, I was in high school. You were? Okay, I was right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you remember this car when it came out because, right, it was a big deal. V8 engine in the M3. It was a, it M3. Was a V8 M3, which is just a huge deal. And yeah. uh, I remember there was uh, a guy who lived, you know, not that far away from me who had a Lime Rock Park Edition car when it came out. And that's the car that we selected for uh, this year's list. And it was that trademark orange. Oh, and yeah. It just stands out. Sounds crazy um and it's such a it's both like a pure blood m3 like it has all the things you want from a a daily driver thrilling sports car but in the context of bmw and you know a company that for 20 years prior to that was really known for its inline six engines the v8 was just 
the best kind of anomaly. I mean, it's it's fantastic. It's a super cool car. Uh, I remember I being quite a few years older than you, Eric. Um, I spent a lot of time in these things, and it was you know the the you remember the lineage of the M3. It came out in the late eighties. Was a four cylinder version built for racing. Probably the baddest of the bads. You know, I mean, the in a great great way. And then the E36 came out in the 90s, really neat. And then the next one is the E46 is where I thought the M3 started to lose its way. It got a terrific motor that year. It's like 333 horsepower, straight six. But the suspension was not as dialed as I was used to from BMW, meaning they were these livable, sharp, precise cars. Suddenly it got really stiff and uncomfortable and kind of jumpy. And I was like, "Uh uh-oh. But they... They kept at it. They realized you've got this uh, sedanish body competing with M3s and Corvettes because that's sort of where it runs price-wise. And then this V8 was like, wow, here it is, the powertrain company, and they're totally killing it. So I was super happy to see this on the list. But, you know, Brian, when you do something like this, you know, that that V8 M3 was not around for very long, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is the only generation uh, of M3 yeah. with the V8. So it makes it stand out. Um, sometimes collectors are are like that, and it's that could be a little bit hard to predict. Um, so why do you use that word collectors? Let's let's talk about that yeah, for a second. Um, I, I don't like that word. I I hear you. Uh, collectors, enthusiasts. Um, it. Uh, I'm trying to differentiate people who are viewing cars as transportation. When I say collector, I don't mean somebody who has 300 cars sitting in a hangar somewhere. Um, Got it. So. I'll use enthusiast if that makes you feel more comfortable. It, it, it does. But do you mind? I mean, I just, I mean, because I don't I, consider... I, like, um, mo- most people who own a couple cars for fun don't consider themselves collectors. That's not a word. Uh, that's more of a an industry word that gets talked okay, about. Okay, so, so probably get with it. I mean, the, you know, it's moved on. All right. I'm hip. Uh, I'm hip. I got it now. Um, <laughs> it's a fine line yeah. to hoarder, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It goes quick. Um, so enthusiasts sometimes will gravitate towards something that's a little bit different. So this this oh. uh, generation uh, M3 stands out because it's the only mm-hmm. one with the V8. Uh, and this engine, I, I haven't had the pleasure of driving this, but uh, by most accounts, it's it's a great engine. It's, and it's stellar. A, yeah. Yeah. So that helps. Um, other times, cars, uh, car enthusiasts will will turn away because it doesn't fit what their image of an M3 should be. Uh, in this case, uh, Which, what, what, what's the image of an M3? It should have a straight six. If it started with a four. Oh my gosh. This is what car people make. It's no not sense. Exactly. The logic is not consistent. <laughs> it's not consistent. That's what, that's what makes it tricky. But you know, the, the, so I think the, um, the interesting thing about this, I'll go back to demographics. This M3 is, almost exclusively being purchased by Generation X and um, younger. So 90%, 89% actually. Ooh. So it's huge. Um, and again, I, like demographics isn't everything with this, but what it shows is that um, there's a big pool of people who are starting to spend more on cars that mm-hmm. really, really like this car. And so big demand, people coming into uh, kind of the prime years where they're, where they're seeking out cars that they really want. Um, and so that that opens up a lot of opportunity for the prices to go up here. Um, younger, younger, I'm not going to say collectors, younger enthusiasts uh, actually pay more for this car than uh, older ones do. So um, they value it higher. It's also, it's relatively, it's, it's a newer car in, in, you know, compared to 
yeah, it's a got lot of what seats. people consider collective mm-hmm. cars. So there are some right. that are still in good shape. And it's not only is it V8, but it's naturally aspirated because after this, the M3 went to turbo. So when you look at the, you know, the norm today of what's out on the road, most cars have some sort of forced induction, almost always turbocharger. And the notion of a, you know, nicely high revving V8 with, with uh, natural breathing is super appealing. Yeah. And that natural breathing, right? It's like you get this linear curve. You don't get a surge. I mean, the surge is fun with a, with a turbo or they call it a snail or a blower. But, you know, I really like this sort of linear part. Uh, Eric, when you post this stuff, when you talk to the audience, you know, this car has a first also with a twin clutch transmission, I think, if memory serves, right? It was the first uh, M3 with a, the yeah, technically, because the E46 had the SMG. Right. So this had a really good automatic. Yeah. And you, but you still get the manual. Um, and I mean, what are, what are readers, how do they respond when we talk about automatics versus manuals? Uh, well, comments are always tough because comments are always the extremes of any position. So you're, you're looking at a, a narrow bandwidth of what people at large think. Sure but in, in general, we are <laughs> collect, like, enthusiasts care about manual transmissions. Okay. Uh, yeah. You know, the, in Brian's world, they're almost consistently valued more highly, um, particularly when it comes to sports cars. Like if you look at Porsche prices, you know, all the manuals are valued higher. Um, but readers, they identify that as being a, a necessary skill um, and uh, a thing that identifies you as in the club, in the tribe. You know, Status. You just have to go on, uh, you know, Boomer Facebook to see all the jokes about <laughs> the... Uh, you know, anti-theft device known as the third pedal. <laughs> right. I mean, this car is 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 a real bargain. I mean, even um, if you compare it against new cars, this is one of those things that, Brian, you've told me about, the the, the point of substitution. Mm-hmm. You know, Condition 2 M3, which is, you know, the Condition 1, the way you've described it to me, is like the perfect one in the world. There's maybe yeah. a handful here. Condition 2, they're winning car shows left and right because they're so untouched. That's And then when you get down to 3, this is what most cars are. And four, where it's got a lot of miles, maybe 80, 90, 100. So a really, really nice one is between 40 and 60 grand. I mean, that mm-hmm. is a smoking deal. How much do you think like a stick shift adds to that value? Is it 10%, 20, 30, what? Uh, that's a good question, Larry. I haven't looked that up. It'd be significant. Just guess. Yeah, it's probably um, somewhere you know. around the order 20%. 20%, amazing. Well, it's um, a cool car. I was glad to have it on the list. Uh, I want to move on because we have a lot to get to. Um, and this is one of the things that we try and do is make sure that there are plenty of cars available of a certain model, right? You know, I know we've had discussions where we're talking about cars and people are saying, this one's going to rock it. And I'm like, yeah, there's probably five in the country. Mm-hmm. What's the point of that? It's like, of course. So this is another one of those. I want to, I want to talk about the issue of substitution. What I mean by that is when some cars get, they get priced out of, uh, the the reach of most people, suddenly it that that rising model pulls up all the others, and I think that's what we're, you're going to tell me is the point between this one because it is a really odd duck. We got killer photography of it. It looks like it is going to kill you, like it could be Christine, but it's a it's a Chevy Impala SS from sixty yeah. five to seventy. I mean, that was just a weird one. It really surprised me. Um, why did it surprise you? Well, because, it, you know, in, in that era, you're looking at the pony cars. You're looking at the mm-hmm. Mustangs, the Camaros, the Challengers, the Cudas. And 
you know, this was the biggest of the big uh, Chevy sedans. I know you get the SS version, but it just sort of like, it didn't feel like enough. It felt so hidden that I wasn't reading about it. I wasn't hearing about it. So all of a sudden for you to, you know, come out and say like, oh no, interest is growing that. I was like, whoa, where's that coming from? Right. So it's not a pony car and it's not a true, it's too big to be considered a muscle car. So what's it doing on this list? They made other cool cars in the sixties, Larry. I don't don't know if you knew that, but um, yeah. So the, the Impala, (laughs) the Impala. I was born in 1970. How how would I know that? Yeah. I wouldn't know anything like that. You didn't study history. I know. Um, Yeah. The, it is a, uh, the principle of substitution at play here, really. Um, if you look at other competitive sets uh, for the Impala and you're trying to, if you're a American car enthusiast and you want to get something, you're, you might gravitate towards the Chevelle. The Chevelles are substantially, Chevelle, yeah. yes, they're substantially more expensive. Um, oh, so they are? Can't, they are than, than an Impala. So if you want... What's to, an Impala you know, going for? Let's give everybody a range, Brad. What are we talking about? Yeah, Impala on average is about 30 grand for an excellent condition. That's 40% cheaper than a Chevelle. So you might want the Chevelle because it's the muscle car. It's emblematic. Um, but at a 40% discount, you can get an Impala. Uh, you can get something that's... You can get a convertible. You can get a, a coupe. You get it with DSS. Um, you can get a bigger engine. So you can have a lot of the... I guess the visceral feel that that yeah. Chevelle delivers. You maybe don't have the same cred, but it can it can really fit in um, and deliver a lot of the same enjoyment at a discount. So that's one of the these things, things that's go really in cycles because they do. The, what do you mean? Well, at a certain point, once once let's say Chevelle just becomes unaffordable oh. uh, for somebody who's coming into the hobby, the hope of them getting that car is not really relevant, and usually. Yeah that person's cohort, sort of their community of people who are, we'd imagine roughly the same age as them, they don't really have any experience with Chevelles either because also they couldn't afford them. Mm-hmm. So you get what's available. And then mm-hmm. once it gets a critical mass and people mm-hmm. start appreciating something for what it is, mm-hmm. uh, you know, those prices start to go up because it, it, it becomes its own thing. And then the cycle eventually repeats itself. Got it. Okay. It's a cool car. I mean, this one we had was black. It had a Hurst shifter. It had a big V8. It made all the right noises. It spun the tires like nothing. And it had a lot of style. And, you know, 30000 when you quote that price, like there's not that many $30,000 Impala SSs around. You know, the, the majority are, they've got aftermarket parts. They're not stock. They're still totally get you that experience. And they're like twenty grand. I mean, so mm-hmm. this was like, this is like, when I saw this, I was like, yes, because I was just, just so excited because I knew we were going to be presenting something that was an option for the vast majority of our readers who we serve. And that's why I was like, I, I, I guess, Brian, I don't want to get you too big for your britches, but I was really, you know, I was kind of um, singing your praises for make sure you include stuff like this. So uh, nice job. Thanks. We, we did this one just for you. <laughs> yeah, I love these these uh, 60s American muscle cars. I've had a bunch and, you know, they don't want to take them on the curvy road, but they're so charismatic. They're, they're, they're so simple and they're just really fun because like the, it's like a, it's like a canvas. There's so many parts and so much you can do with them. I mean, they're fun. They're very livable too. And you're mm. talking about parts and that kind of thing. These are not, um, some of the cars on, on the list are going to be more of a, how to say it, an engaged owner experience yeah. where you need to pay a lot of attention. This is like 
something that's that's relatively straightforward to own and operate and maintain. You don't have to find a specialty garage and that kind of stuff to. And to be and clear, people aren't, go ahead, say, people aren't really precious about it too. Like, there's there's many ways to enjoy it and and be part of that community without being you know mechanically or sure. uh, you know factory perfect. And to be clear, this is the SS version we're talking about. That's the one that, that you believe Brian is going to rise up in value. Not every Impala. Correct. Yep. And really, the the coupes and convertibles are the are the body styles with that. Uh, yeah, with super fun car. Eric, I'm going to kick it to you. I want you to pick the next one that you want to talk about. We got a <laughs> wide variety. Well, if we're really what's trying wait, to... maybe what's your favorite? Do you have a favorite? Um. Oh my gosh, you're favorite. such an opinionated guy, and you're and you hemmed and hawed. I'm surprised. I'm not having and hawing. I just, I think, I think, I have a personal experience one time driving a Ferrari FF. Mm. And it was the first Ferrari I'd ever driven, mm. and I, I'd say for that reason, it's it's a little all right. Tell more us appealing to me. Tell us about the, the next car on the list. What year? What is it? What it's worth? Go for it. So I want to get the exact years right here, but the next one is the 2011 to 2016 Ferrari FS. Okay. So this is uh, Ferrari's 12 cylinder station wagon. Seats four, two doors. Um, this is a totally fascinating car. Why? Sell me on it. This is a cool it car. Is, I agree. I want you to tell the audience how freaking cool this thing is. I want you to be excited about it. To me, at least, this is a way to experience the craftsmanship, the thrill, the aesthetic of a Ferrari in something that you could legitimately own and drive every day. I mean, you'd need a, a healthy repair budget for it, but you you know eventually but still it's it's practical in a way that you know front engine gt ferraris or um or mid-engine sports car ferraris practical. just aren't why are you talking practical, practical exotic yeah please it's totally exotic i mean i'm I, got, I remember driving one around downtown ann arbor and like people didn't really look at you which is a phenomenon you can't really experience in in a lot of exotic cars i and see not everybody wants that attention um, so this is the Ferrari that imprinted on young, impressionable Eric Wiener with <laughs> I mean, his freshly minted Russian driven, Orthodox so. degree. <laughs> it was the first Ferrari I'd ever driven. So, yeah, it was a it was a big deal to me. Yeah. So um, I'm, su- I'm surprised well, I it was uh, under the radar because that shape is so striking. I mean, there's there's very little on the road that looks anything like it. Nobody noticed. I mean, not, well, I mean, it depends on, on the color. Earlier that year, I'd driven a McLaren, mm-hmm. and it was everybody was looking at it. I mean, this is such an um, it's not actually an odd car because for a long time, Ferrari has tried to make four seat cars, practical cars. I mean, going back to the 50s, you know, they always mm-hmm. said, well, you yeah. know, we got to broaden the audience, it's got to be more usable. And, you know, they've tried different things. The, the, the really cool thing about this, to your point, is it, it does look like more like a, a two door station wagon. So it's like a Ferrari version Shooting of the Chevy Nomad. Cool. And V12 engine, something like 600 horsepower. It was so cool what they did is they slapped this takeoff unit off the front of the motor to drive the front wheels. So it's actually four-wheel drive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a, big, and, that's a big difference. And a lot of cars, like 911s, the rear seats are pointless. They're so small. These ones fit real adults. And so it was a really well-executed car, totally usable. Nobody really bought them. They were like 300, 350 grand, like stratosphere money. 
Um, you know, Ferrari's cracked that nut now with the SUV. But here, there was a bit of heated discussion about including this car on the list or of a different Ferrari. And I really got shot. To, I, I mean, I got shouted out of the room because I was like, ah, come on, this is just a weird one. I mean, when it's your fun car, you want the sporty one, you want the V8, you want the thing, not the family truckster. But maybe I'll admit I might have been a little mistaken on this. <laughs> so, Brian, tell me what. Tell me a little bit about what the story is. Why? Why this car? Why now? Why this car? Yeah. So this is a, a little unusual. It's almost still a new car, right? 2011 to 2016. So most of these cars should still be, de- de- still be depreciating. Yeah. Um, uh, and it has been over the last five years. It's gone down 22%. Um, but it's got... Uh, it's a great driving car. And I think yeah, that's nice. a big... That's a big part of it. I had the pleasure of being at the um, annual experience for the Ferrari Club of America this mm-hmm. summer in August. And I met three FF owners that had driven over a thousand miles in the car to be there. And all they could do, and I know owners rave about their cars. That's that that's part of the deal. <laughs> but they were all long-term Ferrari owners had owned uh, several different models over their lifetime. Yeah. And this was the one for them. And they, were, they just couldn't stop raving about how... Um, how capable of a DT car it was, how comfortable it was. They could, they yeah, were excited to drive home. Um, that was like as, as much of a highlight as the experience itself was the fact that they got to drive the car there and back over such great oh. distance. Um, and different weather conditions, I'm sure, was something that they really valued. Yeah, and people, people drive these cars. They drive them a lot, actually. And, and when we look at our, um, our insurance data, we, uh, you know, we can see that people actually do that. Um, through what they report. So um, that's validation for this uh, yeah. this car. Yep. Well, they've lost half, half their value. Like the nicest one in the world is 140, 150 grand, which is, um, you think about what you could buy in the new car land. I mean, would, do you want a uh, Land Rover or Range Rover for 150 or one of these? Duh. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, to one of the things that you pointed out, a lot of Gen Xs are interested in this because they have young kids. And the owner that brought us the car, he was like, yeah, I got kids. I want to take them. Right. And that's a change that you've seen that we've seen in the last decade or so across the whole collector car industry or the mm. enthusiast car industry. Enthusiast is there. a um <laughs> is a is a increased focus in from younger generations on utility. And this is why you see oh. SUVs and pickup trucks and four wheel drive vehicles uh-huh. um just getting a lot more attention than they previously did. Yep. Because people want to be able to do stuff in their car and not just not just drive it, but take people with them, go to interesting places. Sure. Um, and there's only so much you can really do with a Minigen sports car. Um, so if you want that exotic experience, but you want to be able to go skiing and, you know, you can do that <laughs> in a Ferrari FF. Yeah, they're totally cool. And so I was grateful to have it on the list. They're visually stunning. Uh, the next one is, I, I've, I've been warming you up. Brian, <laughs> to get to this one because oh, gonna, you really um, you really I have to be on the hot seat to justify this one for a lot of reasons. Maybe well, I don't know. I mean, you know, it's a collaboration between the editorial team and your team, depending on what the list is, because we get a huge list, and like you said, we want to make sure there's a lot of variety. I really got outvoted on this one again. And uh, first off, can you guess which bull market car I'm talking about? I think there's only one that it could be, and that's the Plymouth Prowler. That's got to be the Prowler. Oh, my gosh. You just don't know me. I feel hurt now. I thought we were friends. Wow. 
Yeah. No. Oh, we're going to save that one for later, we'll I guess. We'll save that one. That, the Plymouth Prowler is a gimme. I was like, yeah, totally bring that thing. This has to be the Mitsubishi then. Yes, the Mitsubishi, okay. of course. Well, Go ahead, Eric. Oh, tell yeah, us what right. it is, quick. Well, this is a, a JDM car. This no, is, you got to uh, give us the year, the model. Tell the audience. They're not looking at it. 97 and 99 Mitsubishi uh, Pajero Evolution. Um, what is that? Yeah, I've never heard of it. Most people haven't, Larry. Uh, this is uh, a JDM, J- Japanese domestic market car. Uh, so these were uh, not sold in the U.S. Oh. Uh, and this is kind of part of the trend that we've seen in the last few years, uh, mm-hmm. you know, five, ten years of uh, really the rise of Japanese collector cars. And again, this gets to the utility aspect. Um, this is these, this thing's not about utility. What are you talking about? It's right-hand drive because it was sold in Japan. You can't buy it here. They have to be imported. The cool part about this thing is they made a small number of them to make them high performance so they would be legal for the Paris-Dakar rally. And they, they couldn't federalize or couldn't make it legal here, so they didn't sell it here. And I understand it's a totally cool car, but it's, it's not the practical. impression of utility. <laughs> it has an impression Certainly of utility, than, but it's a real small, stubby two-door yeah, it's a small, stubby two-door thing. I mean, it, it, my beef with this one on the list, Brian, and and I don't mean to throw you to the bus, so, although I don't mind. Oh, man, this, but, this you know, one is like a lock, so I'm not worried about this here, uh, Larry. Okay, it. it's a lock in that, yes, they're 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 going to go up in value because I think they made under 5,000 new. Yeah, 2,700. So 2,700. They're, they're rare, but they're not, it's not like you can't find them. That was what we really debated. Because this was one of those, I was like, well, there are five in the country and none of the readers can actually buy one. What's the point? But turns out I know there are three here in Detroit mm-hmm. and you see them around. I mean, they're being imported. Like people are figuring it out and the folks now have money. They want them. So it's getting easier to import. It's getting these easier. Cars. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. There are a and lot of dealers just- that specialize in these. Sorry, Eric. But um, and so... They're coming oh. over uh, in more numbers. Uh, yeah. The dealers have, a lot of them are really good at offering support and there's a great community uh, that, yeah. that this gets you entry into. Um, mm-hmm. they're, not, they're not practical in the sense that uh, parts are widely available and, and all that sort of stuff. You have to, you have to find a shop that's going to be able to help you out um, that knows these has connections and can get parts a little bit easier. Um, sure. But, but they're awesome. I mean, I, uh, yeah, they're, they're totally awesome. So there's a couple it's, things on this one. The video game version of a Montero. Yeah. It, you know, short wheelbase, two door SUV, um, homologation special for 50 grand. I mean, like that's kind of cool, right? Um, Very interesting JDM, car, yeah. The JDM market has been on fire and that's all driven by, uh, what is it? Wait, JDM. Japanese the, domestic market. So, these cars and, and SUVs and vans in particular that weren't sold in the U.S. Uh, are newly becoming uh, eligible when they get to be 25 years old. Um, and that's why when you run around, you see Mitsubishi Delicas or you might see Toyota High Aces or that kind of thing mm-hmm. um, that are all over the place. Super popular uh, in certain parts of the country anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the SUV market has been on fire over the last 10 years. So this is this neat intersection between a JDM SUV that has high performance it's compact, which makes it kind of fun and exciting, um, and it looks the part. I, I don't know when you when you see it, it looks like a, I don't know. It's got a spoiler. It's got fender flares, like the whole thing. Um, so super it's totally cool out there. 
Yeah, Eric. And is Larry, this, I wouldn't expect you to get it. So that's auto. Okay. Yeah, I'm too old. Auto internet gold? Yes or no? Uh, it's a niche. I, I don't. I don't think it has extremely wide appeal. I think it's a, oh. it's a niche. Uh, but it. But it's a passionate niche. I mean, yeah. It's a cool car. I mean, to your point, the, the engine has is pretty sophisticated, you know, in terms of the variable valve timing and lift. It was a system not available here. The guy in Detroit who bought it is a friend of mine. And he's, he told me he had the most horror story of horror stories because he bought it. I think it was out of Brazil. It got put on a shipping canor, container. And then when it shows up, you know, the engine was fried. Mm-hmm. And now he's got to rebuild this motor with all these exotic parts. And he has no recourse because, you know, what's he going to do? Chase the guy in Brazil. So that was one of the things I was a little hesitant, but um, I get it. Neat car. Uh, it's going to appreciate. It's not that expensive for something that um, I think a lot of people really like having something totally special. So it's a great car. I'm going to give you, Brian Raybold. I want to get moving a little bit here. What's the next one on the list that you like? Um, let's talk about the Countach. So oh, yeah. this, this is the this 1989. Is Any, anybody could have done this. <laughs> um, well, it doesn't mean it. You know, it's not poised for appreciation. So like. Sometimes you get a, you get a slam dunk. So this is a 1989 Lamborghini Countach. That's a silver anniversary car. Um, interesting thing about this. Uh, okay, this it's an expensive car, right? Six hundred thousand is going to get you an excellent uh, version of this. Yeah. I think the interesting thing is um, there's a there's. I mean, the the story of the last ten years has been this demographic shift in the in the in the uh, enthusiast space, and so nice. older enthusiasts really. Uh, when they think about a Countach, they think about the early design. Really pure, um, this wedge shape, very, very sleek, uh, unadorned. And that that's a Countach for them. Um, nice. But that's, you know, as it got older, it got a lot more, um, uh, it just got a lot more design to it. So Busier, maybe. Busier, there you go. Found, so, wait, um, wait, wait, why are you being so nice? You know, somebody at Lamborghini got a hold of the J.C. Whitney catalog and bought every spoiler, <laughs> scoop, slat they could find, and they put it on. And then they had a bumper. I mean, Eric, tell me I'm wrong. You're from Philly. This is your dream car. <laughs> you know, this was the, I got a ride in one of these when I was eight years old from one of my dad's friends, and it imprinted on me big time. Oh. Uh, but th- that was a, a 74, not, uh, not a later car. But still, it's they made the car last as long as they possibly could. And, mm-hmm. and to keep it relevant and to keep it, try to keep it up with the times. I mean, if you look at the styling from the early 19 or early mid 1970s to the way styling changed in the automotive landscape by the time this car came out, you know, in the late eighties, totally different. And, and they managed to, to still make it look thrilling and exotic, but yeah, it doesn't have the design purity that the original had. There's no question about it. Sure. But that's okay. So- right. Because a 50 year old today, was 16 in 1989 and this is a Countach for them. Right? The well, early cars don't don't speak Countach to folks who were who imprinted on cars in 1989. The one that was on their poster on the, you know, the definition of a poster car. The, this was the poster car that was on somebody's wall when they were 16. It had the the rear wing. It had the the intakes and the strakes and all this stuff. Um, and these are the cars that uh, that era of of buyer is interested in. And so it's you've seen pretty, that reflected in the prices. It's pretty amazing. I mean, what you, what's on the bull market is just a one-year only car. It's a 1989. It's a 25th anniversary, correct? Mm-hmm. And I know yep. what you're saying. Like, if you look at the 1975 original Countach and then the 1989, you might be forgiven for thinking they're two different cars. But then underneath, the body is fairly the same. The couple of things that I think um, made this a really good choice was this was a couple of years after Chrysler uh, purchased Lamborghini. 
And they poured in a fair amount of money making the fuel injection more reliable, the engine more reliable, the production teaks better. And they were really making a go out of this because this was the highest volume year for any Lamborghini, right, Brian? Uh, sounds right. Sounds right. It was also yeah, the Wolf of was, Wall Street. Mm-hmm. Much later, yeah. And it was it's, it's emblematic of that era of excess. I think okay. there's, there's people who are just fans of the 1980s and they really, you know, see the appeal there but despite all the advances you're talking about larry i mean the car still had no abs no traction control i mean it's a the pedal box that you know only somebody my height could fit into and you know you've you probably perfect for this car i'm like a racing jockey (laughs) yeah i remember (laughs) we we, we did a uh there was a guy a collector who's got a few lamborghini countaches and he's like i'm tired of these cars getting you know they get denerated as, you know, you can't drive them. Come on out and, you know, I want you guys to drive these things. And, you know, we're going to show that they're really usable cars. Of course, you get out there, the clutches are failing. I mean, nothing's working. And uh, this car that we had, we only had 4,000 miles. It was like as new. That's Ran really cool. perfectly. No problems. That wasn't the problem. The issue is like, I've never, I've never shifted a car that with the shifting effort was so high. It has manual steering with this tiny little diameter wheel so the steering's really stiff like you don't really fit in it we i mean it is it is like it is a fashion accessory that sounds really fantastic now let's say they were were never known as uh ergonomic delights right it was in their lifetime yeah so anyway okay totally neat car i get what you why it's on the list i know the data backs it up it's just gonna be i think any countage it's a store of value right if you if you ever get worried about the financial market, just buy a Countach and you're probably going to be okay over 20 years. Brian? Yes? No? That's good he's, investment He's not going to commit Larry. to this, Eric. Watch. He's going <laughs> to hem and haw. Watch. No, Larry. I think, uh, yeah, that's a good strategy for sure. <laughs> just buy up Countaches. I got to call my wife. That's a really good idea. Okay, Eric, what's the next one? Let's see. Well, we already hinted at the Prowler, so maybe we should go there. Oh, yeah, Prowler. Eric, I want. I'm gonna give. I'm gonna give you the floor. I want you to try and explain what this car. You know, oh, you weren't even around for this, were you? You weren't in. I was seven when this car came. Okay, out. all right, all right. I'm gonna have to do it. My apologies. So, this car is uh, what year are we talking? Help 97 to 1997. Okay, so this was an era right when I started uh, at Car and Driver, and it was a fascinating era especially because uh, you had Chrysler was, you had Bob Eaton there, you had Bob Lutz and you had this guy, Tom Gale and you had Francois Castaing, super great engineers, really great car people, you know, very driven executives who really knew cars in the business. At the time you had this Dodge Neon. It was like one of the cheap economy cars, brilliant thing to drive. All their cars felt really good. All the cars, I'm not saying they were reliable or the best built, but they had this little flair and feel to them that was unique among the domestics for sure. And they were on a roll, right? They came out with the Viper and everybody was excited about it. It got brought people into the showrooms, which is what a car like that's supposed to do. They said, well, what would we do next? Well, Tom Gale, the chief designer, is a big um, hot rod fan. And the you know somebody said, why don't you do a version of the 32 Ford, which is like really the, the most common basic hot rod from the 50s. And, you know, with all the new regulations that we have in terms of crash, pedestrian safety, emissions, I mean, who would have thought they could bring something to market so stylistically uh, faithful to a 32 Ford and then believe they could sell it? But they did. I mean, it's kind of amazing. Uh, 
I mean, I know you were seven, Eric, but do you remember seeing this thing? Were you like, oh my God. Oh, oh really? Oh my God. I had toys of it. I mean, it, it was the idea that there was a factory car that had outboard wheels like that. Yeah, no, that, that yeah. It, it just, it just blew your mind. It I did. mean, it was the coolest thing on the road. I thought they were wild. And then, you know, to make it, they, they, they used it as an incubator for new technology. They, they, they had aluminum body panels. Actually, in the, in the beginning part, they had aluminum rotors in the back to try and save weight. All this stuff. The downside was to maintain that shape, they couldn't fit anything other than their three and a half liter V6 tied to a four speed automatic transmission. So I think they hit the market kind of perfectly because the person who wanted that car was a little bit older in years, wanted something they could cruise in that looked really nice, but was going to run. Maybe it had air conditioning, had some comfort. And I don't remember if it was a big sales success, but, you know, it wasn't really taken very seriously among the enthusiast crowd. It was more like a, mm, you know, like a style that, thing. That powertrain um, that a lot of crisis, not yeah. inherently, but because it had the look of a super high performance car and a hot rod. I mean, it's unapologetically right. looking at early 30s hot rods as the source. Right. But it didn't have the guts to, to back up that aesthetic. And of course, a hot rod always did that. But so they got forgotten. But uh, Brian, you're telling us that they've been re uh, refound, rediscovered. Yeah, I think Twenty five years later, uh, the fact that it doesn't have the engine that people wanted is less of a less of a concern because this car is mm. all about the style and the appearance. It's not about mm. the, the the specs, right? So that's that's the big thing here. This is an overwhelmingly uh, the demographic is overwhelmingly older. So 72% of owners are uh, baby boomers. But the interest mm. among younger buyers is increasing really quickly. So 20% were Generation X or younger in 2018. Uh, it's now 33%. So that's going up. Still trailing what the norm is for cars uh, in terms of the demographic split. But mm -hmm. uh, I think it's one of those things, like Eric mentioned, this car made a, an impression on him when he was seven. It, it was on every magazine cover um, yeah. when it came out. Uh, you couldn't miss it. Uh, and it's just kind of this moment in time where, like you said, it was kind of outrageous that this car even made it into production. Yeah. I love, um, the, and, I love that the owner brought a matching trailer. Yeah. And they had all those <laughs> accessories and so they, they had, accessories they had and... wild colors and I mean, it, it like stands out and that's the whole reason for this. So, um, I think that's the thing retro cars in general, and this is, um, you know, the retro design, this is probably the most retro of all of them. Sure. We're talking about like the, the, Thunderbirds Beatles and, the, and the minis and the HHRs exactly. of the world. Um, younger buyers really dig that aesthetic. Um, and so, you know, um, this fits in right in there. And I think that's one of the, one of the prime drivers for why this is set up to appreciate. I was not surprised to see it on the list. I thought they'd gotten forgotten, you know, the Chevy SSR, you know, not mm -hmm. my cup of tea, but another one that, you know, they, what you would see so often at the time is you'd see a concept car, at an auto show and they'd say, this is our next generation of cars. And you'd be like, oh my God. And then you'd see the car that came out of that in the showroom and it was like, wait, what? We just got cheated. This is nothing like mm -hmm. what you showed us. But this thing was like, oh, they showed us a concept car. We said, there's no freaking way they're going to build it. They built it and they, you know, because they had these uh, really headstrong executives that would not compromise, which almost never happens by the way. So this is also like one of those really, um, to me, a marker in time when you had 
somebody that really loved cars and loved the, not just the cars, but the the customers. They wanted something special for them. And because um, I know Bob, I know Tom, and I've talked to him about it. And, you know, really had a lot of blood, sweat, you know, fighting the accountants to get this thing out. And so there it is. So it, it does stand. And like, to your point, it's, they're like 30 grand, between 20 and 30,000. Like the price yeah. of a new Focus. It's like, yep. wow. Oh, wait, they don't make the Focus. Anymore. Well, you know, that's when you pipe <laughs> and you're like, hey, hey, dumb, dumb, they don't make the Focus anymore. Actually, yeah. Not for America anyway. <laughs> but not pretty soon, not globally. All right, we got three left. And they're all convertible. You want to go to the Jeep? Uh, yeah, tell yeah. us about it. I, I this is a this is a, a blind spot in my automotive knowledge. Uh, Eighty one to eighty six Jeep CJ Scrambler. I don't know. You you tell me. Uh, these were a big deal because they were they were a long version of the Jeep CJ, which is sort of the you know everybody knows the classic Jeep shape, but this was long. They had the best print ads, Eric, because you always wanted a Jeep, and then in these print ads they would have a Jeep with two dirt bikes in the bed, and it was just like. Like if you were like a kid growing up, this was the Jeep to have. And so consequently, they didn't make a lot of them. You know, they had a CJ5, a CJ7, and that was all based on their length. And then the CJ8 was the sort of outlier. So, you know, we, we had a CJ5, I think, or seven on the list about five years ago, Brian. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we so, did. So, you know, this is another version of that. Um, these are these are probably the most expensive way to get the Jeep feel and character, would you say, because they're rarity? Brian, help me out here. I'm starting to fly. Yeah, out. they're, yep, they're 40 grand is an excellent version of one of these, which is, yeah, you know, arguably expensive for a Jeep from the 80s. They're tractors, by the way. They are they're, freaking tractors. They're really crude. They get the, yeah. pretty, they're pretty slow with the, they got the Iron Duke engine in them. No, uh, they a, had a range. Some of, some of them did did have the Iron Duke, but um, they had some AMC motors. Um, the 4.2 liter uh, uh, inline six was available too. Um, so they had, they had a range. It's not about how. It's not really about how fast you're going, Eric. It's about where you're going with this thing. Yeah, but there's what, a, what's there's in a, the best degree of livability? I mean, so it, I mean, I personally the aesthetic here. It seems to be the main appeal and oh, so amazing cool. amazing sticker package on yeah. it i mean it, it, it looks <laughs> insane this it's is all the, about the, the stickers ideal beach sure. car yeah, yeah it'd be fun it, uh, to have i mean you know if we could if we could fantasize about our summer homes on the hamptons this would be the funnest car to have um brian quick question for you you know they had all these really weird named special edition cjs right wasn't there a golden hawk there golden was eagle, like, I think golden eagle. Sorry. Yeah. Okay. I was close. Hawk eagle, same thing. <laughs> um, and there was a few others and you know, it's just basically like you said, Eric, a, a stick and a sticker package, but those are, that usually increases the value quite a bit, doesn't it? Yeah. It's all part of the, the visual appeal. Cause especially when it, it just, I don't know. It, the golden eagle is, is one of those examples. It looks like it came from exactly when it came from. Um, <laughs> and you know, that, there's no mistaking it. It's not a timeless design. It's very much of its period, which makes it cool, uh, especially mm. from if, if you're nostalgic for that stuff. Mm. So, um, yeah, the, uh, this is all about the body, though. It is uh, a unique thing. So in the Jeep world, there are millions and millions of Jeeps. This one stands out. Um, mm. It's appreciating faster than other Jeeps of its era. So that's uh, that's the big thing here. Um, and they, they're rare, but they're not super rare. Again, like they're... Uh, what does they that made, mean? How many numbers I, are we talking? I think they made around, you know, 20,000. 20, I mean, so, they're, yeah, they're, it's been published. Yeah. 
yeah, they're out there. So um, that, you know, rare is a, is a relative term. Um, that silver anniversary, I think there's 657 of those Lamborghinis. So, you know, th this is a lot easier to find than one of those. And do these CJ8s have more in common with the, like, CJ7 and the other predecessors than with the YJ Wrangler that 100%. followed? Yeah, same thing. So they're still pretty, they're still pretty old tech. You could, you could yes. probably build a new one from a catalog today. Yeah. I mean, there's, you bring up a good point. They're really simple. You know, you can take them down to the frame in an afternoon. And um, they are capable. You can get a stick shift. So you can take the doors off. I mean, how much fun? I mean, yeah, they flip kind of easy, but, you know, don't <laughs> like an idiot. <laughs> okay. The next one is another, like, really, you know, this is, this is like what I call a deep cut, Brian. And um, that I don't think is on people's radar, but it's one of the things I love about what we do with this bull market list because, you know, a lot of, we want to give people a chance to uh, shop and to fantasize mm -hmm. and to sort of bring something to their attention that they might not have had otherwise. And that's this T-Bird. I want you to yeah. tell us a little bit about it. Give us the year, the rundown, the cost, all that stuff. Yeah. So this is the 64 to 66 Ford Thunderbird, um, short production run. And like you said, it's not when, when most people think of a Thunderbird, they're thinking of the baby birds from 55 to 57, or they're thinking about the bullet birds, um, which was the generation before this one we're talking about. Um, so this one is not as well known. Um, 40 grand, 41,000 will get you an excellent example of one of these. They came in a number of different body styles. You can get coupe, convertible, uh, sedan, sports roadster. Um, all, all sorts of different stuff there. Um, I think the tagline that, that you guys put in the magazine was Mad Men meets Astronaut. And I think that's a great yeah. way to phrase it. Um, it's this mid-century modern design um, that starting to get... Uh, it still shows of the of the jet age. So these, you know, the, the style inside is so um, unique. I mean, like yeah. the, the instrument cluster, um, all that all that appeal or kind of the, the aesthetic when you're sitting inside it is the way that center tunnel like curls around you. Yeah. Like a little cockpit feel yeah. like there aren't, there aren't cars that are like that today for sure. There aren't a lot of cars that are at this price that have that same design feel. And I think, you know, mm. this isn't about speed. It's not about power. It's just about uh, a totally unique experience when you're, when you're inside of it. And cheap too, right? Yeah. 40 grand. Um, you know, for a, Mid sixties, um, very well established collector car. Um, I mean, you know, to, to Eric, to your point, four seats, V eight, Ford V eight, right? You get the four twenty eight in the thing. It's it's low, it's, it's smooth. I mean, does this classic. kind of car appeal to you? What do you when you look at it, or your generation? Oh, I mean, I don't know that I speak for my generation, but uh, <laughs> I, I find it really appealing. I mean, it, mm. it's that total sixties Mad Men styling. Um, I love the the scallop kind of um coverings on the back of the on the deck the lid tunnel, go all yeah. the way. It, it's they're so cool and yeah. i love to get those linear gauges before yeah the way it works yeah it just looks so cool and and mechanically these there's there's nothing horrifically complex here so it, it you know they're reasonable to own and work on even for a terrible wrench like myself so i mean i completely get it you just have a lot of have to have a lot of room in your garage <laughs> For for yeah, it's a big, big car, a lot of metal, a lot of unique, uh, shiny bits to it, trim, dash. I mean, like you said, this was when Detroit was really mastering this art of, you know, 
the, the, the list of parts that Ford must have made in 1965 had to be, you know, a spreadsheet that would go around the, the world because everything was unique. They weren't sharing stuff. And it gave this Thunderbird just such high style that is, I'm, I'm surprised this car didn't pop up sooner. But I think, Brian, what happened was the one that did that was the Lincoln Continental. Mm-hmm. And, and the Thunderbirds it, get kind of overlooked. Sometimes. They do, right? Yeah. So now it's coming yeah the back. yeah that continental I mean I don't know uh, that continental has made some appearances in pop culture which maybe helped it out a little bit that was the right. the entourage convertible the entourage car with yeah, the, yeah, yeah. Um, dual and the doors. continental is substantially more expensive so this yeah. is this is another potential example of substitution at play I mean I think it's more right back to that forty seven town and country. You know, it's just more capable, it's more usable, but super fun and super comfortable. And, you know, the right time with the top down and everything like that. Eric, bring us home. What is the last car? Uh, let's see. I'm, I'm, I've missed Mr. Jag. Uh, missed Mr. Right. Jag. Oh, Jag, the XKR. Yes. Uh, I love this thing. Well, tell mean, us what I, it is. Tell us what it is. Well, it's the 2000 2005 Jaguar XKR. So this was ah. the, um, the spiritual successor to the E Type. Uh, that came out in kind of the early 2000s. But this is the premier auto group uh, Ford era of Jaguar. Um, Nobody knows what that is. This was the era where Ford had a controlling ownership uh, of a lot of luxury brands, including Jaguar and Aston Martin. Ah. Um, And these went totally under the radar for quite a while. They have a very passionate owner base who really love them. Um. You know, great sounding V8 engines. Uh, I think really, really attractive, subtle styling. Um, I, 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 I'm very happy that we put these on the list. Um, you know, these were very modern and very forward thinking uh, in an era that Jaguar was still kind of coming out of its dowdier, uh, more old manish era. Um, this mm-hmm. is one of the cars that really moved the brand forward. Yeah, I mean, Ford had owned Jaguar for, I think, a decade at this point. And uh, that was the basis for that Premier Auto Group. To your point, you know, Ford bought Aston Martin. They bought Volvo. They layered in uh, Mercury and Lincoln. They tried to make, oh, this is our big luxury division. They opened up an office in um, in L.A. And um, at the time, though, over that decade, they really invested in making Jaguar a reliable, kind of reasonable car because you know the one before it that this predecessor was something called the xjs which they built for like 20 years and you know you know from to go from the e-type in the mid 60s to about 75 to 95 maybe you could see even 2000s like jaguar was pretty much kind of a joke and you know ford's injection of manufacturing expertise money all that stuff took a long time to really come due and I think this is a car where it really did. And I, th- I think we, we don't give it the credit it, it really deserves. Supercharged V8, beautiful, clean shape, reasonably reliable, fast. You get a convertible. And now, Mr. Raybold, they are stone-cold bargains these days. Totally. Yeah, 25000 gets you an excellent example. Um, and if you're thinking about a, you know, a British convertible from the 90s uh, mm. or the early 2000s, 370 horsepower. Like there aren't a lot of options for that, that, that are even close to this price. Um, gotcha. You're talking about a, a DB7 or something like that. That's going to be twice the cost. 
And we quote probably a little bit harder this year, but those are, you know, we remember an excellent condition car is damn near perfect. And it's like, you know, winning car shows. The vast majority of cars that are out there are number three or number four condition. Yep. A good condition XKR is averaging just over 16 grand. You're getting a very attractively styled, uh, you know, British convertible with an American V8 supercharged for just over 15 grand. Like super cool. I, I I totally get this. Uh, if you're, if you're looking for style performance, uh, you want something a little, little bit more, uh, luxurious than a Corvette, you know, super D car. It's a great list. Uh, I mean, you know, if I could speak for the audience, thank you two both for bringing it to them. It's on Haggerty media dot com right now or haggerty slash haggerty.com slash media and uh, you can find all the seven bull market lists we have a lot of stuff like we said you know gut checking brian uh, raybold's team to see you know how good they did, did or not do you can always get uh up to the minute valuation data on your car meaning what is it actually worth and um you get full access to it if you're a member of the haggerty drivers club as well as Six issues of Haggerty Haggerty Drivers Club magazine. You get roadside, you get discounts, all this fantastic stuff. So please consider signing up. I I think, you know, we really covered it. Anything else that you guys wanted to add about this year's list? Uh, I just, I I love the breadth that's there. I love uh, the the range of options. I think it's a fun list. Um, And Mm -hmm. hopefully there's some stuff there that gets people excited. For sure. Yeah. Hope to hear from you. Eric, how about you? Yeah. I mean, I, I think there's something for everybody there. Um, you know, I, I like the, the diversity of stuff, the variety of stuff. Um, I, I, like I said before, any, any time we can do a project where we can have a photo shoot that has a homologation JDM special with a Countach and, you know, with a early 2000s Jag, I mean. And a 47 Chrysler. Yeah, it's just so, <laughs> it's just so interesting. And yeah. it, it shows how, uh, how many entry points there are into the hobby. For sure. And just how, how fun it can be. Yeah, totally get it. Well, I tell you what, you guys, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, everybody, for listening. We'll catch you next time on Never Stop Driving.